is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Rob Archer. And today for Charles Feldman, record high gas prices are fueling lots of anger across California. The governor now says lawmakers in Sacramento need to do something about it. He's called a special session that will start next week to get something done. We go in-depth into whether lawmakers will actually do something this time to rein in oil companies that have been reaping record profits. The Senate has just passed the bill to avoid a rail strike ahead of Christmas, and a new study finds pandemic lockdowns changed the brains of teenagers. Before Al Franken became a U.S. senator, he, of course, was a comedian, a writer, political pundit. He's now returning to his comedy roots, but mixing in a lot of politics in his new uh, show tour. It's coming up uh, in L.A. later this month. He'll be here. Uh, We'll be speaking with Al Franken about this new tour, his time in the U.S. Senate, his thoughts on politics today. Oh, so much to discuss with him. Uh, And if he ever has plans of returning to Washington, D.C. as a lawmaker. We're going to start with the upcoming special legislative session in Sacramento to tackle high gas uh, gas prices. Jamie Quartz, president of Consumer Watchdog, he testified earlier this week in front of the California Energy Commission about these uh, high prices. Uh, Before we get into whether you think that uh, we're actually going to do something about high gas prices in California. Uh, tell us a little bit about w- what is the problem? What what engendered this uh, special session, and uh, what are people up in arms about? We're up in arms about the fact that there's a $2.60 gap at, at its highest point between gas prices in California and the U.S. There, there's an unprecedented uh, delta between those prices. And when you look at the profits that the uh, oil refiners had in the first nine months of the year, when our prices went up so much more than the U.S. prices, uh, they were uh, literally windfall profits. Their profits were four times what they were in the same nine months last year. And by every measure, you know, if you look at their profits per gallon, they've doubled over the historic levels. Uh, If you look at their profits in California, the oil refiners over their profits in the U.S., they're 30% greater. So by every measure, we have windfall profits and we have, we have extraordinarily high gas prices. And the governor said enough is enough. Uh, we got to do something to put a lid, to put a cap on how much these oil refiners can make uh, when our gas prices are so, so much higher than the rest of America. You know, the, uh, Jamie, this issue has been on the table now ever since gas prices really started to spike in, in recent months. We've had you commenting on it um, many weeks here on KNX. We've also had some experts come on the air saying there's no gouging involved here. It's simply what the market can bear. Your reaction to what they say? Well, the proof's in the profit report. And the experts, a lot of them are paid by the oil companies. The proof is always in the profit reports. And when you have uh, the five oil refiners making $67 billion in profit in the first nine months, when they made $17 billion in profits in the first nine months of last year, there's, there's obviously gouging going on. Our prices are way out of whack with U.S. prices. Their profits are way out of whack with profits made everywhere else and profits made historically in California. To me, it's a simple mathematical equation. Uh, and when they make those type of profits, if you can tap them and force them to rebate uh, any of the price gouging, then you can stop those high prices. So I'm 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 a little I'm a little baffled by why everyone's not not really focused on the bottom line, because the bottom line is we are paying outrageous prices. They are making outrageous profits. We need to get the profits back. It's a simple equation for me. Uh, very quickly, because, you know, gasoline is something that we got to have in our cars, uh, even though we have a lot of hybrids on the road. You know, they take gas as well. 
and uh, it's not like we can say, hey, we don't like these high gas prices. We're not going to pay. We just won't get gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not a doable uh, answer. So uh, that said, uh, what, if anything, can the state government do? And do you think that they'll actually do something this time? Yes. Uh, the state government can set a windfall profits cap, which is a cap on how much the oil refiners can make in profit per gallon. I suggest 50 cents per gallon because they've only hit that mark uh, three times in the last 20 years. This year, they're making uh, 69 cents per gallon. And if we set that limit uh, and force refunds in a price gouging penalty or rebate, that is what the governor has called for in the special session. That is what we're going to do. And it is a majority vote bill if it's a price gouging penalty. It's not a tax. We're not taxing anyone. We're saying there is a limit to how much you can make off a gallon of gas when your crude costs or something, you can charge for your crude costs. But when your profits are so high, there's a limit to how much you can profit from us. And if we do that and put the penalty in, it'll be a majority vote. And I have no doubt that it will be hard, but we will get it through the legislature. We can get a majority vote bill through this legislature. It won't be easy, but it will happen. And I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that, um, that uh, we'll have more than a majority vote for it. But I think it's going to happen this year. I've been watching this for 20 years. and I have a good feeling that this year, this is the year the governor stood up for the public. He's going to bat. He's going to introduce the right type of legislation based on his special uh, uh, session declaration. And when he does that, um, we're going to we're going to have the legislators confronted with choosing between the people and and lower gas prices and the oil industry. We just had a poll today. Over 60 percent of, of, of the public supports a windfall profits cap and price gouging penalty. And it's in L.A., it's 69 percent. It's across all uh, regions, across all ethnicities. Every it's, it's widely supported. So legislators are going to have to deal with that when they convene. Jamie, before I let you go. If that doesn't happen. Is there a compromise or is it all or nothing? Well, it's not. Look, the compromise is at what level is there a windfall profit? That's the compromise. The compromise is how much profit can they make and what is a windfall profit? That's where the the compromise is to be had. There's also going to be measures for greater transparency so we can get to more information. But ultimately, it comes down to uh, how high should that windfall profit cap be set? And I think it's going to be set. And I hope it's I hope they, they, they should be able to make a reasonable profit. But the types of profits we've been seeing now, no more. Okay, Jamie, thank you again. That's Jamie Court, president of Consumer Watchdog. And right now, though, it looks like a potential rail strike uh, might be avoided. Uh, the Senate passed a bill to avoid a freight rail strike that threatened to slow down the economy and the transportation of goods just ahead of Christmas. Earlier in the day, it was not clear if it would make it out of the Senate. With us now, uh, to give us some more on the ins and outs of it, Stephen Portnoy, CBS White House correspondent. So what's the latest on this? Uh, what's happening next? And what is in what just passed? Yeah, fellas, look, this is a congressional intervention, the first such intervention in about three decades, to impose a contract upon railroad workers who, in the case of four unions, voted against it. It puts Democrats in an awkward position to say that the negotiating process, the the typical way to achieve a union agreement should be upended and that Congress should step in and deprive the workers of their right to strike, to demand Uh, the things that they wanted. And in this case, what they wanted most was paid sick leave. What you have to appreciate and understand is if you are in the railroad uh, industry and you're on the rails as a conductor or a machinist or engineer, uh, you leave your home and then you ride the train wherever it goes in the country. If you happen to get sick wherever you are, 
uh, there's a, not a real good mechanism under the 20th century legal framework that governs the industry for you to take a day off sick the way those of us in white-collar professions can. Uh, the railroad workers have never had the right in their agreements to take a sick day, and they were fighting for it now for the first time. Stephen, how much – oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say they failed to achieve it and in the negotiation, and it, today in the Senate – a House passed measure that would have put seven sick days in the contract failed to overcome a Senate filibuster. It got a majority of, of the senators uh, to, to back it, but not the 60 votes that would be necessary to move forward. What's interesting is there were at least six, maybe seven Republicans who actually crossed party lines and voted for it. But that was not enough. You need 60 votes, and they didn't get it. So instead, the, the, House, uh, the House passed it yesterday, 290 votes in favor. And the Senate passed it today, 80 votes in favor, sending to the president's desk the five-year agreement that was brokered by the president and his administration and announced in mid-September. It will take effect as soon as the president signs the bill. Now, as I understand it, uh, the rail uh, workers are not going to be very happy with uh, not getting the sick days, which is the whole reason they went on strike in the first place for a lot of them. Uh, So uh, who gets the blame in, in the Senate? Well, I mean, look, um, who gets the blame in Washington? Uh, the, the railroad workers say that the Democrats have let them down here. And in particular, they say that the president let them down. The president who says he's pro-union, who voted against congressional intervention 30 years ago as a senator, is now saying that the, uh, the damage to the nation's economy from a rail shutdown would be so great that the workers have to accept what he called, what the president called, a negotiation that was so much better than anything that they ever had. At a news conference today alongside the French president, the president scoffed at the notion that the agreement that his administration brokered let workers down. Will there be a next step in this, Stephen? Well, ultimately, uh, in the next several years, when it comes time to renegotiate a new contract, depending on the political dynamic here in Washington, we'll see what kind of leverage the unions feel that they have. Uh, But for the moment, this story is tied up with a bow. The Congress has imposed on the unions a five-year agreement. It takes effect when the president signs it. There won't be a strike. Okay. Stephen Portnoy reporting for us uh, from uh, the White House again. That's Stephen Portnoy, CBS White House correspondent. Coming up, we're going to be talking to former U.S. Senator Al Franken. He is on tour with the new live comedy slash politics show. We'll ask about uh, that and what he thinks about what's happening right now in Washington, D.C. A lot to talk to him about. Right now, though, we've talked a lot about the pandemic, the lockdowns and their impact on the mental health of teenagers. It has not been good. Uh, we're going to talk now about this study, and its lead author is Ian Gottlieb. He's uh, with us now. Uh, he's a professor uh, of psychology at Stanford University. First of all, uh, Professor, tell us uh, about this new study and what it shows. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so what we've been able to show is that the, the pandemic lockdowns have affected not only the mental health of adolescents, which we've known um, we've all known for the last, you know, couple of years, but it's affected their the development of their brains. The um, the way that their brains have aged has changed as a function of having experienced the pandemic. Now, when you say their brains have aged, uh, what exactly does it mean? Does because I, I imagine you're not you're not saying it's made them more mature and more adult, or perhaps you are, or are you saying that the aging effects as our brains begin to wear down? That's what the study focused on. 
Yeah, so it's a really good question. Again, these kids are 15 to 18. When we typically think of brain aging, we think, you know, atrophy when you're 70 or 80 and it starts to affect judgment and inhibition. Um, so what we found is that these kids now have um, thinner cortex um, in their brain. So cortical thinning, larger hippocampal volume, larger amygdala volume. Um, their brains appear to be older than their chronological age compared to the same age kids before the pandemic. So their brains have, it's accelerated their, the aging of their brains. Is it, is it an adverse thing? As you said, is it positive? Is it, is it negative? We don't know because we've never seen this in adolescence before. Um, we're following these kids. We're doing another scan when they're 20 to see if it's possible these effects will not persist, but they're just immediate responses to the pandemic um, that will normalize over time. But it's also possible that the pandemic has changed the brain development of this cohort of adolescents. Yeah, I, I see in the study here that in many cases, it's very similar to the changes seen in children who've dealt with chronic stress and adversity. Yes, it's similar to changes that we've seen in children who experience very early in life uh, adversity, exposure to violence and abuse or neglect. Um, and you look at their brains at age 20 and you can see some of these same effects. But that's chronic exposure to stress. We've not seen this with uh, uh, the effects of a one-year lockdown. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, there have been times in history kids have gone through all kinds of uh, traumatic events. I'm thinking of uh, London, World War II, uh, yeah. kids, uh, young kids uh, going down into the uh, subways to not be bombed out of existence by yeah, uh, Nazi absolutely. warplanes. So, right. but that was or not a two-year. Yeah, that was not a two-year extended thing. This pandemic was a two-year extended thing of stress, and it's a concern. Because uh, you say you don't know yet if maybe these uh, conditions will not persist, but is the concern if they do persist, is that going to lead to problems uh, in their mental health and uh, their brain health down the road when they become older adults? Yeah, that's the concern for sure. And I don't want to be alarmist about that because, as you said, we don't know yet. We'll have a better sense after we're able to to reassess them um, as they turn 20. Um, but that is the concern. So what we've done here, you know, we've known that the the mental health, that the pandemic has taken a toll on, on kids' mental health. What we hadn't seen is that that's accompanied by changes in their brain. Um, the hope, of course, is that their mental health improves, that their this accelerated brain aging slows. Um, but I really want to focus on the importance of making sure that we are able to support teens' mental health. Um, and I think that alone will have effects, positive effects on their brain development. How surprised were you by the study's findings or were you surprised? Yeah, we weren't surprised about the mental health findings, but we were very surprised at the extent of the brain aging given the relatively short period of the pandemic lockdown. Okay. Uh, Professor uh, Gottlieb, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Again, that's Ian Gottlieb, uh, studies lead author. He's a psychology professor at Stanford. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Eden. I'm Rob Archer. In for Charles Feldman. Well, you know the name. Al Franken. You probably saw him on Saturday Night Live way back when. He was a writer, performer on the show. Very, very funny on the show. And then he became a political commentator and a political writer. After that, uh, by the way, some some very... Uh, entertaining books he's written. Uh, after then, he got into politics, became a Democratic senator from Minnesota. Mr. Franken resigned from his post as senator in 2018. And he's now blending both comedy and politics into a show that's coming to the El Rey Theater in L.A. on December 14th, part of his the only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour. With us now is uh, former U.S. Senator Al Franken. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. So you have had you have had a big impact on both comedy and politics, and uh, I I think people of a certain age remember the comedy, but also you know uh, a lot to do with politics and your time in the Senate. How hard is it for you right now in this day and age to mix comedy and politics? It's not hard. Um, I I kind of always did that. I mean, in the Senate, I was that deadly serious except when i was in private talking to my staff and my uh colleagues but mm-hmm. no i put my head down and did the work uh but no i uh, right now i'm on tour i've been uh this is a stand this is stand up this is not uh, a speech or something like that uh and i really love doing it my start was in comedy and then you kind of laid out what I did. I started, I did SNL for 15 seasons and I started writing these books and, uh, was got more and more in, 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 in the politics. And then, uh, Paul Wellstone was my friend. And after he died, Norm Coleman, um, came senator. And in March of, uh, after about two months after he was in office, he did an interview and in roll call and said, to be blunt, I'm a 99% improvement over Paul Wellstone. And I said, I wonder who's going to run against this guy. And that's when I thought about that, and I clobbered him by 312 votes. <laughs> and I was the 60th uh, Democrat when I finally got there, got there late because they went to court. But I, when I finally got there, I was the 60th Democrat, and we got the ACA because of that, and uh, put my head down did the work. Yeah. Uh, Al, let, let's talk a bit about the state of politics right now, um, post-Trump, sure. although when we say post-Trump, he's still having a big influence, obviously. Post uh, the Trump presidency. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll re- reform that. Uh, the midterm election is not what we expected, not what the Republicans were expected. It went from a red wave yep. to a, what, a, a red dribble. Your thoughts on what we saw and, and what we're seeing right now? Well, my wife the next day said to me, I, the American people were kind of saying, stop it. And it was really gratifying to see, especially these deniers who were running for these important offices like secretaries of state in, you know, in uh, Michigan and uh, in uh, in Wisconsin and uh, in uh, other other states who were deniers and and they lost. Which and I thought it was what was interesting is most of the deniers actually who, who said the twenty election was stolen actually conceded, <laughs> which I thought was very odd. But okay, they did, or a lot of them did. Um, but I think the American people were saying, "Stop this! Stop the stuff about these lot, you know, this disinformation." Uh, obviously, they they took the house, um, 
they're going to have a small majority in the House. And my take on the Republican Party is that it's going to be very unwieldy for whoever the speaker is. It sounds like Zoom McCarthy, but that they are probably going to be, you know, investigating Hunter Biden. That I don't think they've learned anything. And I, I, I think the Republican Party is kind of made of two, two kinds of politicians. One are chicken, chickens and the other and, and did not, were not willing to say, no, Biden was elected fair and square. And the others who are crazy. And unfortunately, I think the crazies will be running the show in the house. Yeah, you know, I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because I've been following politics for a very long time. And, uh, and I know that every election we're told this is the most important election of your lifetime. This, this election yeah. decides the future of the country. And we're always told that because you're trying to get people to vote, uh, which sometimes succeeds and sometimes does not. And then we were told, I remember, uh, that uh, George W. Bush was going to cancel the elections and declare martial law and become a dictator. And then we were told, I don't that remember Barack Obama. That. <laughs> Barack Obama was going to do that. He was going to cancel the elections, arrest all of his opponents, and declare martial law. And then he was going to do that in 2012. And none of that stuff ever happened. But then flash forward to now, and you've got people who were on the fringe, who were now in government, who openly talk about things like, we should just install so-and-so as governor or as president, and we need to look into these reporters and putting them in prison now. Uh, it's it's kind of like they're saying the things they warn us about. So did we just go through the most important election in the nation's history, and do we have another one ahead of us? The most important election in our nation's history was in 1860. But this is second, <laughs> and and the next one will be second also, uh, or maybe first. I, I think what Americans are saying stop it to was looking at this threat to our democracy, and which is very real. And we see it in many different ways. One, the Supreme Court is illegitimate in my mind because they wouldn't take up Merrick Garland. By the way, this isn't what my act is like. <laughs> but as long as we're talking about Yeah, where's about the comedy the, here, uh, Al? Yeah, uh, but I, I'm trying to, I, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Rob, I'm trying to answer your uh, questions, and I, which are incredibly important questions. Uh, they, This was, the, our democracy was, is at risk. And going into this, I was very scared that if these secretaries of state, for example, who run the elections, uh, let, let's say just in Michigan, you know, if if they say, and the guy who's running for governor in Pennsylvania, the governor in Pennsylvania, he is a denier, and the, the, the governor of Pennsylvania appoints a secretary of state, that would have been a very big threat because those they're in charge of elections and they would have been able to do in 24 what trump wanted them to do in 20 which is steal the election for him before we get to the comedy stuff i got one more uh, political question for you and this goes back sure. to uh when you resigned uh kind of a scandal over the the picture uh taken back in your comedy days uh right. when you appeared to be uh, you were pretending to grab the breasts of a woman and there were some uh, other issues and and you resigned uh, uh you left the senate in light of what you know now with all the scandals that, uh, that some would say are far worse than what you were accused 
accuse of doing. Uh, if this happened to you today, would you resign today, knowing what you know now? Well, this was sort of timed uh, by the moment that it was. And this was, uh, again, I wasn't even pretending to do that. I was pretending to pretend. I mean, she was wearing a flak, you know, a, a flak jacket uh, with, with plates that could stop a forty caliber bullet. We were on tour. We were doing a USO tour. If I would point people to the only person who's actually investigated this is Jane Mayer. And she did a piece a couple of years ago in the New Yorker. And this was, she, this uh, woman was, was not, was lying. Uh, and my colleagues did not, my democratic colleagues demanded I resign 36 of them. And um, I, yeah, I do re regret resigning, but it was, you know, this is something when I think back to it, I don't, I don't remember it. I relive it. And it's still very uh, traumatic. And uh, yeah, I regret it, but I was put in pretty untenable position that someday maybe I'll write about. But um, I, I had nine colleagues apologize, former colleagues, and uh, uh, accept that, uh, you know, and um, but yeah. Well, Al, Al is, is there a possibility for a, a comeback? On the, on the, my on, options on the open. political scene, yeah. I'm keeping my options open. It's that's about it right now. Yeah. So, are, but are, I've been doing a lot of political stuff. I'm still, you know, exactly. I, as bad as I was treated by my colleagues, I'm still very much a Democrat, as you probably heard in the first half of this interview. And um, I have a political action committee, and I raise money, and I support Democrats, and um, yeah. and it was very important that we that we won those elections that we talked about in the first in the first half of this. Let's talk a little bit of comedy. Uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, there's so much to talk about there. But one thing I loved on Saturday Night Live uh, was one time you stood in front of a whiteboard and you drew out every, from just from scratch, you drew every single state in the nation. Can you still do that? I can. Um, <laughs> it's an odd thing. Look, everyone, is. I can draw all 50 states from memory. Um, a lot of people are going, that's amazing. I said, well, look, if you want to learn, if you want to learn to juggle, you learn to juggle, you just do it. Right. And then you can juggle if you want to, for some reason, I decided this is something I wanted to do. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's, it's partly cause it, it's pretty impressive because it's like drawing a picture of your brother-in-law. And the states, this 50 states, there's hundreds of lines here. Oh, yeah. But it's like me drawing a picture exactly of your brother-in-law with 200 lines. <laughs> you know what I mean? With I mean, every it's... wrinkle. <laughs> yeah, because you you see this map every day. Everybody sees this map several times a day, right? And, uh, you know, people, and I used to do this as a fun fundraising thing at my fundraisers, and I'd auction it off. The most I got, I got $15,000 once. Wow. Hmm. 
Not not could go to, directly to my campaign. I just for yeah. legal purposes, I want to make that clear. <laughs> I want to dig back into some other uh, comedy you did on Saturday Night Live. You know, I, I kind of grew up watching you, so you know, I, I was a fan of your comedy days, and and uh, and and did follow what you did in this and the work you did there. Uh, but there was one thing, and it stuck with me. And it's like when you do a bit, and people remember it years later. The bit I remember you doing was the decade of Al Franken, and right. you were explaining. You know, if memory serves that uh, from now on, the only thing you were interested in is how this is going to affect me, Al Franken. Al Franken. And and any news event was going to focus on how this affects me, Al Al Franken. Franken. Did you survive the decade of Al Franken and how well did you do? The Al Franken was the 80s. Uh, The 90s, I handed off to my son. It was the Joe Franken decade. And uh, basically what this came from was... Uh, well, actually, the 90s was the Al Franken decade, I guess. So the uh, 80s was the me decade. And then everybody at the end of the 80s was writing these articles about what the next decade was going to be. And they'd always write if it was an expert on energy, they'd say it was the energy decade. <laughs> so it was always about them. So I figured, OK, well, I'll just make it about me. And then I handed it off to my son. And now it's the Al Franken millennium. Ah, that's that's You're big shoes, okay. Phil. Very good, very good. Yeah. Uh, Al, before we go, let you go, we've got to ask you about uh, what folks can see when they turn out. Uh, El Rey Theater, the uh, only former U.S. senator currently on tour, tour uh, December 14th. What can we expect? Well, it's comedy. It's stand-up comedy. You know, when I left the Senate, I started doing speeches, and I would stand at a podium, and I have notes, and I realized 80% of this is just comedy (laughs) so i said i've always loved stand-ups you remember franken and davis rob uh and do so i said that's what i want to do i love stand-up i love stand-up comedians so i started working out actually at the comedy cellar in greenwich village i have grandchildren in new york so i was spending a lot of time there and i just worked up an act and i've been doing this for uh, a while this tour about 35 cities thus far and it's just really fun. Uh, normally, most of the people who come, almost all the people who come to see me are my fans or and agree with me. So a lot of people ask me, "What do you, what do you, uh, what do you learn touring around the country?" I go, "Nothing." <laughs> they all agree with me. Uh, when I was senator, you go all around Minnesota meet everybody, uh, which was great. But this is just fun, and it's uh, it's a lot of laughs. It's it, that's what I'm going for. We're looking forward to it. Al, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. We're looking thank, forward thank to you. Thank you, guys. Uh, this is this is a lot of fun. Again, this is Al Franken joining us. And don't forget, December 14th, El Rey Theater. It's called The Only Former U.S. Senator Currently on Tour. Tour. You'll be here again at the El Rey. That'll do it for today's edition of KNX In-Depth. For Rob, I'm Chris. We're back again tomorrow.